And we come now to our last session, and I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 4, and you're going to want to have your Bible open, and you're going to want to follow along with me. This last message I want to entitle, A Towering Transcendent Vision of God. And I think it's appropriate for us to conclude this conference with this message because disciples of Jesus Christ are those who know God. Jesus said in Matthew 11 and verse 26 that no one knows the Father except the Son. And those whom the Son wills to reveal the Father. You and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, know the Father because God the Son, the only mediator between God and man, has revealed the Father to us. Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God, and when we see Jesus, we, we see God. Thomas said, show us the Father and that is enough, or Philip, and Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is the fullest revelation of the Father to us, and yet Jesus, by His Word and by the Spirit, has pulled back the veil and enabled us to see more of the Father. And so in Revelation chapter 4, I want us to see more of the Father. Revelation chapter 5 is about the Son. But Revelation chapter 4 is about the Father, and I would say that He has become the forgotten member of the Trinity. Of course, there is great focus upon God the Son, and in these last years, great focus upon God the Holy Spirit. And the Father seems to be standing in the shadows, but as disciples, we must understand that Jesus has come to reveal the Father to us. And here in Revelation chapter 4, we have a towering, transcendent vision of God the Father. Beginning in verse 1, I want to begin by reading this text. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and is who is to come. And when the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. If we are to know God, we must know Him for who He is. We must not not have some low, base, trivial figment of our imagination of what we think God is like. And we cannot have a self-made view of God as, as though He is on our level, as though He is one of us or like us. Rather, we must have a knowledge of God that is based upon divine revelation, that is so transcendent and so vertical and so high that it leaves us breathless. We must have the true knowledge of God if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ and follow our Lord. We must have the knowledge of God that is jaw-dropping, heart-pounding, knee-bending, eye-popping, awe-inspiring, soul-searching, pride-crushing, faith-building, life-changing, joy-producing, obedience-generating. What we need is the personal experiential knowledge of God that will literally revolutionize our lives. And this is why I'm drawn to Revelation chapter 4 as we spend our time together because here is God. Here is God, not as we want Him to be, perhaps, but the true God of heaven and earth. And with this text, we literally step into the heavenly palace, and we come into the inner sanctum of glory, and we step into the throne room of God, and we behold our God. And anything less than this is vain imagination and is really idolatry manufactured in our minds. This is our God. The chapter begins in verse 1, after these things, after the Lord Jesus has given the seven letters to the seven churches, John writes, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. 
And it will be through this door that John will be caught up into glory and given this vision of God. And he says, in the first voice which I had heard, this voice is a familiar voice. This voice is a commanding voice. This voice is the voice of the one who has just spoken to him on the island of Patmos. It is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And Christ now summons John up into heaven And we read that the voice was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. And the voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. John needed to see this vision of God. And you and I need to see this vision of God because as John received this, the circumstances down upon the earth were desperate. By the end of the first century, the church is undergoing severe persecution. Emperor worship is now set up throughout the empire. John himself has been confined to to solitary confinement on the island of Patmos for his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other 11 disciples have been martyred, and John alone is alive. And as John looks around, the church is in a a desperate hour, and John must see on the other side, up in heaven, what God sees. But he must see first who God is. And I want us to see who our God is, because we as disciples of Jesus Christ have come to know the Father And we must have this understanding and knowledge of who God is if we are to follow Christ triumphantly. High views of God lead to high and holy living. And low views of God lead to low levels of discipleship. And so we must have this towering view of God. I agree with A.W. Tozer who said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. Because your entire life, in one way or another, is a reflection of who you believe God is. So as we look at this chapter, there are six attributes of God that I want to set before you that are imperative that we understand who God is as disciples of Jesus Christ. And beginning in verse 2, the first attribute is God's sovereignty. You'll note in verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. And this would indicate that John's body was still on the Isle of Patmos, but that his soul, his spirit, somehow, someway, has been caught up as he is in the Spirit and transported now into the very inner throne room of God. And behold, a throne was standing. What first struck John was not the architecture of heaven. What first struck John was not the streets of gold or the gates of pearl or who's here or who's not here. 
What immediately struck John was the most dominant feature of heaven and is the very epicenter of the entire universe. It is the command post of the entire created order. He saw a throne. The throne is the throne of God the Father. And it represents his absolute sovereignty as the almighty God over all of the works of his hands. And while on the earth, everything looks to be chaotic, everything looks to be in disorder, in heaven there is a throne. And we read that this throne is is standing. It is fixed. It is bolted to the floor. It is not on wheels that can be moved around. It is unshakable. It is unmovable. It is unchanging. It is unswayed by human leaders and human events. Roman Caesars come and go, but this throne remains standing. Human history ebbs and flows, but this throne remains fixed and towering over all of the events and over all the circumstances of the earth. The entire created order is under the dominion of this throne. And as R.C. Sproul would say, there is not a maverick molecule anywhere in the universe. But second, not only is the throne standing, we note in verse 2, it is occupied. It is not a vacated throne. Despite the appearances here upon the earth, in heaven the throne is occupied. And the one who is sitting upon the throne is God the Father. And the fact that the throne is standing and he is sitting on the throne means that he is presiding. He is in session. He is ruling even in the church's darkest hour. The throne is is occupied and the one who is seated upon it is holding sway over all of the events of human history. He but speaks, and it comes to pass. He but acts, and it holds fast. He but wills, and it is done. And the entire chapter of Revelation 4 revolves around the throne. Ten times in this chapter, the word throne is mentioned. Thrones, plural, is mentioned twice for the 24 elders, but the throne of God is mentioned 10 times in these 11 verses. And everything in heaven finds its position by its proximity to the throne. In verse 4, there are those that are around the throne. In verse 5, we see what proceeds from the throne. In verse 6, what is before the throne. And in verse 6, what is in and around the throne. In verse 9, what goes to the throne. And in verse 10, what is before the throne. Everything is defined in heaven by its location and proximity to the throne because the throne is controlling everything. In verse 3, and he who was sitting was like a, a jasper stone. A jasper stone is crystal clear. It's like a diamond, and it speaks of the absolute purity and holiness of God, that he is, a, he is like a flawless stone, glory, 
refracting and the light of, of His holiness shining through this jasper stone in a radius, in appearance, deep, rich, red, conveying royalty and splendor and majesty. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. The beauty of His holiness showcased above His throne. And around the throne were 24 thrones. These are lesser thrones under the dominion of the throne. These are appellate thrones. These are subordinate thrones who receive their direction from the one who is on the highest throne. And these 24 thrones have a lesser delegated reign under the one upon the throne. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders. And they are here representing all the redeemed of all of the ages. Perhaps 24 elders representing Old Testament saints, or excuse me, 12 elders, Old Testament saints, 12 elders, New Testament saints. And they are clothed in white garments representing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ with which they have been clothed and golden crowns on their head. This signifies a victorious note as they have triumphed and overcome the world and they are now recognized in heaven. Every disciple of Jesus Christ must be deeply persuaded of the absolute unrivaled sovereignty of Almighty God. He or she must know that as they follow Christ, every step of their life has been ordained and ordered by the one who is on the throne. Every circumstance, every event, every trial, every difficulty, Every step that they take is a part of a, of a larger master plan that God Himself has designed from before the foundation of the world. And that we as disciples of Jesus Christ, we march following Jesus and under this sovereign throne. If we are to be strong disciples of Christ, we must understand God's sovereign will is perfect. His sovereign timing is perfect. His sovereign plan will come to pass, and He has foreordained good works for us to walk in. Uh, there is, as we follow Christ in discipleship, there must be this, this deep conviction that we are riding a wave of destiny, that God has gone before us, and that God is marking out our path as we follow Christ, and that all of our days were written in His book when as yet there was not one of them, that this sovereign God has ordained the day of our birth, and He has already foreordained the day of our death, and we will not live one day beyond the time that He has appointed for us, neither will we live one day less. We are, as George Whitfield said, we are immortal here upon the earth until our work for God is done. And every day of our life has been numbered by God. 
we as disciples must understand this, and we must know this, and we have no time to waste as we follow Christ. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We must have a sense of this overriding sovereign will and master plan of God the Father for our lives. That nothing just happens. That there is no such thing as good luck or bad luck. There is no such thing as good karma or bad karma. There are no accidents. There is no mere happenstance. But everything is under the sovereign rule of the one who is seated upon this throne. Strong disciples have a grasp on the sovereignty of Almighty God. The second attribute that I want you to note, not only the sovereignty of God, but in verse 5 we see the wrath of God. Because John next sees a, a gathering storm that is brewing in heaven and is soon to be unleashed upon the earth with terrifying fury. Notice in verse 5, out from the throne. That means proceeding from the one who is seated on the throne, not coming from the from the lesser 24 thrones, not coming from the angelic beings around the throne, not coming from the worshiping multitude, but actually from the throne, from God Himself, comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of, of thunder. There is a violent storm that is, that is brewing and gathering in heaven, and it is proceeding from the one who sits upon the throne. And this fierce storm of divine judgment will be unleashed by Jesus Christ in the last days when He returns. This electrical storm is, is full of divine vengeance and fury and divine anger. Hebrews 10 verse 27 says, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when Jesus returns, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, and verse 7, that he will come in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power when he comes. We continue to read in verse 5, and there were seven lamps of fire. Hey, here are torches that are burning with wrath. And it says, in burning before the, the throne, here is the infinite, unmitigated, intense 
anger of a holy God flashing forth from the, from the throne and fierce blazing light of fiery torches. And it says, which are the seven spirits of God. Of course, there's only one Holy Spirit, but the number seven here speaks of the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the vengeance of the Holy Spirit upon Christ's rejectors that will be unleashed. The Holy Spirit, the comforter, will become the Holy Spirit, the consumer. And flaming torches in the Bible were associated with war in Judges 7 and Nahum 2. And John's vision here depicts God as ready to make war on sinful, rebellious mankind. The Holy Spirit here is the war torch of God. And God is ready to ignite and and inflame sinners who reject Jesus Christ. This world is spinning through space on a collision course with divine judgment. If you would turn to the end of the book of Revelation, to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, in verse 11, it would be worth your turning to it. And even to have a pen and to underline some of the key words that you see in this passage. But let us remember what it will look like when, when this storm is unleashed from heaven, from the throne of God, when He sends His Son back to be the chief executor of this wrath. And in Revelation 19, verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. It is a a war horse ready to stampede to the front lines of battle. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be faithful to execute all of the promises of judgment that God has given. And in righteousness, He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of of fire. Coming out of the sockets of His eyes are fiery laser beams that ignite wherever they look. And on His head are many diadems. This is different than crowns. Diadems belong on the head of a sovereign. But you'll note that there are many diadems upon the head of Christ. They're just stacked up, diadem upon diadem upon diadem. It is unlimited sovereignty. And then he says, and he has a name on him which no one knows except himself meaning no one knows the full force of the exercise of his unlimited sovereignty except he himself. Human words cannot even convey the exercise of his supreme authority when he comes back to judge. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And that's not his blood, for he goes on to to tell us that this is the blood of his enemies when he will trample them down in the fierce uh, winepress of his wrath. And his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. There is a, a stampede that comes bolting out of heaven. But the difference here is with armies today, the general is behind in safety and the soldiers go first. But here it is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is out at the tip of the spear. He is leading the charge and he is merely surrounded by these armies. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that it may strike down the nations. Psalm 2 says that he will inherit the nations and strike them down with a rod of his anger. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will crush them like clay pots. And they will be broken into thousands of pieces. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, the thigh is the strongest muscle in the body. And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of the feast, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men. In verse 20, the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. This is the tsunami of wrath that has been held back by the dam of God's mercy. But in this last hour, when Christ bursts forth from heaven, all the wrath of God the Almighty will consume sinners and they will be swept into the bowels of hell forever. What a terrifying scene this is. And we as disciples of Jesus Christ must know this. We, we must know from what we have been saved. R.C. Sproul has written a book entitled, Save From What? And to listen to most evangelical preachers today, you would think that we have been saved from loneliness. We've been saved from our insecurities. Uh, we've been saved from a bad job. We've been saved from singleness. No, we have been saved from God Himself. And there is only one who can save from God, and that is God himself. And all true salvation is a salvation from God by God. We as disciples of Jesus Christ must know that of which we have been saved. We have been rescued from eternal ruin. We have been delivered from eternal destruction. And therefore, we walk in humility and lowliness of mind with reverence in our heart toward God. If we had time to look at the beginning of Revelation chapter 19, we would see that the hallelujah chorus is sung 
because God has judged the whore of Babylon. And God has smitten and crushed, and all of heaven breaks, uh, breaks forth, hallelujah, to him who sits on the throne. As disciples of Jesus Christ, as we walk this, through this world, not only must we know of the wrath from which we have been saved, but we must be witnesses for Jesus Christ with a sense of urgency to reach those who are around us with the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of you here today even need to go to other places and other countries and other parts of the world and carry the gospel of Christ with you because this final day of divine wrath is looming on the horizon and it is a a fixed date on God's calendar and that day is coming. Disciples of Christ are sober-minded and are filled with reverential awe for God, in part because we understand something of the wrath of God. Do you know something of the wrath of God? Jonathan Edwards said that he would meditate upon the wrath of God frequently that it would promote within him purity of heart and lowliness of walk. There's a third attribute that I want you to see. Come back to Revelation chapter 4. As we are being escorted into the throne room of heaven itself and given a view of God like few places in the entire Bible, and not only does John immediately see the sovereignty of God and the wrath of God, but beginning in verse 6, he sees the holiness of God. Notice verse 6, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. It's almost as if there is a moat around the throne as if there is an enormous sea or ocean around the throne of crystal that is separating God from those in heaven. And even those in heaven remain but creatures who have been redeemed and glorified, but in heaven the redeemed saints still have some distance from God as this sea of of crystal is before the throne and around the throne, and it it is shining brilliantly and sparkling brightly with dazzling light, refracting and reflecting the the light of the glory of God. No one's hopping up into the lap of God. No one is casually approaching the throne. In fact, Those in heaven are somewhat kept at their distance because God is separated from his creatures. That is what the word holiness means. Hagias in the New Testament, Kadosh in the Old Testament, it very simply means this, that there is a separation. There is a cut and a separation. There is now a distance between 
And even in heaven, there will be this separation of God. He will forever be God himself on his own level. And then we read, and in the center and around the throne, meaning in the center of heaven and around the throne, four living creatures, literally in the Greek, four living ones. These are four angelic beings, and they are like watchmen around the throne. They are guarding access to the throne of God. No one may break out of the crowd and rush the throne of God. These angelic beings, according to Ezekiel, are are cherubim, an exalted order of angels who are guardians of the glory of God. Now, they were positioned by God at the end of Genesis 3 to prevent Adam and Eve from returning to paradise. And Satan himself was once a cherubim, once the anointed cherub with closest access to the throne of God. But what we see here is the utter separation and separateness of God, even in heaven. And these, these cherubim who are like guards on the four corners around the throne, it says are full of eyes in front and behind. And the idea is they are always alert, always awake, always in constant vigil. No one is allowed to approach the throne without their awareness. In verse 7, the first creature was like a, a, a lion, meaning strong in serving God. And the second creature was like a calf, very sacrificial in his service of God. And the, the third was like that of a man, the face of a man, meaning smart and brilliant and able to reason. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, swift and ready to to fly if necessary to carry out any assignment that the one on the throne would give to him. Verse 8, in the four living creatures, each one of them had six wings full of eyes around and within. And if these cherubim are like the seraphim in Isaiah 6, with two of these wings, they would cover their face because of their recognition of their utter unworthiness to be in the presence of one who is so separated and so holy. And with two, they would cover their feet, again signifying their unworthiness to be in the presence of this God. And with two, they fly ready to to dart like a hummingbird ready to fly at any moment's notice to carry out the bidding of the one who is upon the throne. And day and night, and we could add in day and night, and day and night, and day and night, and day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God, the Almighty. This is the threefold repetition that is found in Isaiah 6 in verse 3. And to say something three times in a row is to elevate that word to the superlative degree. And they are crying out not just that God is holy, but that He is holier than anyone or anything else But more than that, he is the holiest 
being, the most exalted, transcendent, majestic being in the entire universe. He is holy, holier, holiest, towering in His holiness. And it speaks of the moral perfection of all of His ways. All of His words are perfect. All of His works are perfect. All of His judgments are perfect. All of His plans are perfect. All of His timing is is perfect. Everything that God does is absolutely perfect in His holiness. As we are disciples of Jesus Christ and walk this, the dusty trails of this sin-plagued world, we need to be reminded of this vision of who God is, that He is holy, 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 and how this should impact and influence our lives as, as disciples of Jesus Christ, following Christ, who will never lead us into sin and how we must be aware of our own sin and to be repenters and to confess our sin, to resist temptation, to flee the devil, to mortify the flesh, to deny self. We must live every step of our journey in discipleship as we follow Christ under this awareness of the holiness of God. But there's more. I want you to see in the middle of verse 8 the omnipotence of God. John is made privy now to, to hear the angelic chorus as they sing, Holy, holy, holy. And then he hears them say, Is the Lord Almighty? Please note, he doesn't have just some power. He doesn't have just much power or most power. He has all the power that there is. We generate no power. God possesses all power. There can be no resistance to anything that God does because He has all power. There can be no pushback. Uh, There can be no opposition that could ever succeed against our God because He has all the power that there is in the entire universe. It's not a tug of war between good and evil in which one can barely outpull the other side in the tug of war. No, God has all power. The devil has no power except what power God chooses to delegate to the devil. It is a power on loan. And what little power that you and I have as we live the Christian life, it has all come from God, but it is not originated from within ourselves. It is simply God's divine power manifested in us by the Holy Spirit. But it remains God's power. We live the Christian life not in our own power, but in the power of God. And so as we live our Christian life and as we follow Christ in discipleship, we cannot take even one step without the power of God to enable us to follow Christ. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
God has all power to keep His promises, all power to protect His children, all power to, con- to convert His enemies. He has all power to, to execute His plans. God has all power. And God exercised that power in your stubborn, resistant heart when He brought you to Himself with saving faith. He overcame the hardness of your heart, and the power of God conquered your stubborn, prideful heart, and it was God who brought you low in humility to put you onto the narrow path now to follow Christ. And as we witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, He has power to overcome every heart to which we would witness. He has power to answer every prayer. Absolutely nothing is hard to God. Finally, I want you to note the last two attributes that I will combine together. We see them at the end of verse 8. God's eternality and immutability. For the angelic chorus around the throne of God day and night without ceasing, and it's probably an antiphonal effect, one side of heaven crying out, holy, 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 and the other side of heaven responding, the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. And the other side of heaven, holy, 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 and the other side of heaven responding, He is the one who, who was and who is and who is to come. He is the God who was. This speaks of eternity past. He is the God who is. This speaks of the present time. And He is the God who is to come. Speaks of eternity future. From eternity past to eternity future, He is the same God. Never increasing, never decreasing, never learning. Always the same Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth, the world, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a comfort this is to us as disciples, to know that God from before the foundation of the world has laid out His plans for our life, and He has determine the time within history when we would be born and the steps that we would take, the path that He would mark out for us all the way to the end and then to carry us home to heaven. What eternal security we have as we follow Christ, knowing for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 9, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him, who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever. Verse 10, the 24 elders will fall down before Him. No one can remain standing in heaven. Everyone is falling like cut timber before the throne of God that is surrounded by this crystal sea and these multitudes of multitudes and myriads of myriads, which means ten thousands times ten thousands are crying out, holy, holy, holy. 
All of the redeemed of all of the ages just keep falling down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And this word worship means to kiss toward, expressing our affection and our love and our devotion for God. And it says at the end of verse 10, and we'll cast the crowns before the throne. He will grant crowns to those who have overcome the world. And we will receive our crown from the Lord Himself. And as that crown is upon our head, there will be the realization that all that I am and all that I have done is by His grace alone. He he chose me. He predestined me. He redeemed me. He reconciled me. He convicted me. He called me. He regenerated me. He indwelt me. He sealed me. He adopted me. He preserved me. He sanctified me. He glorified me. This crown cannot remain on my head. I, I must cast it back before His throne across the crystal sea, signifying that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And there will be this realization in heaven that will be intensified to the nth degree that it is by the grace of God that I have made it to heaven and I will cast this crown back before Him. And then all of heaven joins in this chorus in verse 11. Worthy are you. Worship is declaring the worship of God. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we must have this sense of the eternality and the mutability of God. That though my life is continually changing, God never changes. And though the culture around me is changing, and the world in which I find myself is changing, God never changes, and His Word never changes. And what is right never changes, and what is wrong never changes. And as we follow Christ, we realize that it is a march that will lead us through time into eternity future where we will spend the ages to come before the throne of God and declaring the greatness of our God. All of this is to be woven into what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as I bring this to conclusion, I want to ask you this question. Are you going to heaven? Heaven is a real place, and hell is a real place. And everyone in this large convention center, after you die, within five seconds, you will be in one of two places. You will either be in heaven with God, or you will be in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever. And there is only one way to go to heaven. There is only one way to be right with God. There is only one way to find acceptance with this infinitely holy, all-powerful, sovereign God. 
And it is to come through the Lord Jesus Christ, who came, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless and perfect life, who was lifted up on a cross and died for the sins of all those who will call upon him. He was raised from the dead, he has ascended back to heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, and all authority in heaven and earth has been entrusted to him by the Father. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You must come to the end of yourself. You must cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must commit your life to him. You must surrender to the King of kings. And you must submit to his lordship. And you must take that decisive step of faith and leave the world behind, and enter through the narrow gate, and enter into the kingdom of heaven by faith alone. If you have never believed upon Jesus Christ, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved come to Christ this very moment within your heart, within your soul. Take the step of faith and entrust your life to Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day when you die, He will escort you into the very presence of the Father where you will find acceptance with Him forever and ever. So if you've never believed upon Christ, do so this very moment. And him who comes unto me, Jesus says, I will in no wise cast out. He is the friend of sinners. He has come as a physician, not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He has not come for those who are righteous, but for those who are unrighteous. Come to him in the sickness of your sin. Come to him in the unrighteousness of your filthy rags and he will receive you to himself, and he will clothe you with his own perfect rags of righteousness, and he will wash away all of your sin, and he will adopt you into the family of God, and you will become a joint heir of Christ, and you will begin this exciting walk of discipleship, of following Christ through this world, And it is a journey that one day will take you to the very throne of God above. If you've never believed upon Christ, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Let us pray.